If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, A familiar passage, some of you probably may know it by memory. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I don't usually give titles to my sermons, but this one I will entitle, Why Do We Do What We Do on Sundays? I think if I were to ask you as a congregation, is Sunday worship important? I think you would all agree that it is. If I were to take it a step further and to ask, is Sunday worship a priority? The answer might be a bit different. One might well say, well, it is a priority, but there are other things that come up. Have you ever wondered why we do what we do when we gather each Sunday morning? I say at the beginning that we have come together to worship God. But why do we do what we do in the context of worship? In a word, it is liturgy. Simply defined, liturgy is a form according to which public religious worship is conducted. And I think for some people who are more strict in their liturgy, our service may not seem to be liturgical. I would argue that it is, and in fact, all Christian services are, whether they acknowledge it or not. There are several aspects to liturgy. First of all, it sets for us the practices which are to govern our lives. But secondly, it provides lenses through which we are to see the world. To put it another way, liturgy is worldview revealed in our practices. Worldview may be seen as theoretical or abstract or internal. Um, It's something that I give in my first lecture at all of my classes. I define it as a set of assumptions that one holds about the basic makeup of the world. It is the intellectual framework that articulates the core of our faith. This would mean that liturgy is a set of practices, not a set of assumptions, but a set of practices that one performs which reveals one's view of the basic makeup of the world and our place in it. With regard to worldview, we all have a worldview. We have our own worldview. Um, And what I do in my first lecture is I present the students with ten questions. If they answer these questions, they will have sort of a skeleton, a framework of what their view of the world is. What is first cause? Uh, What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after you die? What is the nature of knowing or epistemology? What is the place of culture? What is the basis of morality? What is the nature of evil? That is, how are we to respond to it? What is the nature of power and what is the nature of history? But with regard to the question of liturgy instead of worldview, I would suggest that there are at least four issues that are dealt with and they all have to do with the good life. I think that at its root, any liturgy, uh, religious or secular, is about the good life. It's about how we get to the good life, how we can live the good life. So first of all, there's an implicit knowledge of brokenness. I'm broken, therefore I, and then fill in the blank. Secondly, there is a really strange organization of sociality, um, what we do that we do with others. Thirdly, there is the hope of redemption. I fill in the blank, therefore I am. And lastly, there is a vision of human flourishing. And here I think there's an air of mystery. One might even say faith. It's sort of a don't ask, don't tell type of situation. 
I want you to understand that we all live our lives according to a liturgy or liturgies. They set for us the practices and they give us lens for us to view the world. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we need to recognize that. The purpose of all Christian liturgy is to express in a ritual moment that which should be the basic sense of every moment of our lives. That is, basically, Sunday morning when we gather to worship, this is the rest of the week in microcosm. This is a micro view of what we're going to be doing the rest of the week. As someone put it, we express in action what should be the activity of our heart. And that means that we should see in the ritual of liturgy something that should be going on within our lives constantly. What we do here is in fact to direct the rest of our lives through this week, this coming week. There's an aspect of liturgy I think that people are a little bit shaky about. They don't like it because we would rather be spontaneous, but that is habit. That in liturgy and in practices, when we do something over and over again, we develop a habit, and this governs our behavior. Now, it can be that we can gain habits, if you wish, Um, We can acquire habits unintentionally. Uh, Have you ever had a song in your head that you can't get rid of? Uh, Guy and I both, this past week, from last Sunday to yesterday, had this song in our heads that we couldn't get rid of. Guy's solution is we need to listen to the song all the way through, and then somehow it'll be pushed out of our lives. But there are things that we didn't sit down and say, I want this song to be in my head the rest of the week. Unintentionally, it in fact was there. If you have a regular routine, regular ritual, you can in fact acquire habits unintentionally. But you can also do it intentionally, where you say, this is something I want to continue to do. This is a habit that I want to keep in my life. I would argue that unintentional habits come from liturgies of the world. And intentional habits, by God's grace, comes from worship. I have mentioned this several years ago. Um, James K.A. Smith, who teaches philosophy at Calvin uh, College, has written about the liturgy of the mall. Listen to his description. The malls, no matter where you are in this country, are marked by familiar symbols and texts. They have large pavilions or sanctuaries, like the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. They have maps that guide one on the location of various things offered. The faithful know their way around. The design and layout has architectural echoes that reminds one of cathedrals. Mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at the same time. One can wander the labyrinth in which numerous chapels devoted to various icons can be found. One can be met in these chapels by acolytes who offer to shepherd us through the experience, sometimes inviting us to taste and see and smell. Some objects which have been deemed precious, that is holy, which we take to the altar, the cashier, making the consummation of our worship, we give the purchase price, we receive the object. We are released by the priest with a benediction and we leave the temple. This is in part the liturgy of them all. 
And this is, I think, just one example of cultural liturgies that surround us, that fill our lives. They shape our habits and our loves and our lives. And we don't even realize it. I mentioned there are four things earlier. Let me now apply them. And this is from Smith with regard to the mall. First, an implicit notion of brokenness akin to sin. I am broken, therefore I shop. Advertising certainly helps in this regard. It points to the good life. Your, your life is not good if you do not have this product. This is what you should be aiming for. Advertising tells us or shows us icons of success, of happiness, of pleasure, of fulfillment. Do you want to be as happy as the person in that picture? Then you need to buy this product. The realization comes to you, I'm not that person, that's not me. I want to be that person. It isn't you, they tell you that. You know it. And therefore we shop. Secondly, there's a strange configuration of sociality. I shop with others. That is, total strangers, we're all in this mall, this temple of consumption together. One could argue that shopping is in fact, or consumerism is in fact very self, self it's very much about self-interest and self-absorption. But when you shop at a mall, there are hundreds if not thousands of other people there at the same time. It's a congregation of sorts in which you don't know each other, but you're there with other people. You don't have to do it by yourself. The third thing is the hope of redemption. I shop, therefore I am. Um, If the icons of the ideal impress on us what's wrong with us, why we are failures because we don't have these products, the market liturgies invite us to accept their solution, to remedy the problem. It provides a form of redemption in and through the goods and services that the market provides. Goods and services will save you, they tell you. Shopping becomes a form of therapy and acquiring goods as a way to address what's wrong with your life. Of course, when the shopping experience is over, the feeling fades and the call of the mall is heard once again and we find ourselves returning. The final aspect is a vision of human flourishing. One of the things that the liturgy of the mall does not want us to ask is, Where does all this stuff come from? We don't ask those questions. And I don't mean geographically, but just means of production. We want to be able to have the good life without thinking about others, about those who slaved in order to make the thing that I am buying on sale from a particular store. The liturgy of the mall is don't ask, don't tell, just consume. Now, nobody tells us this when we're in the mall. It's one of those things that is simply understood. The products you buy don't have tags on them that say, I consume, therefore I am. But we need to be aware of the liturgy of the mall, which is just one among many that are in our lives every day. Um, Smith goes on to say that evangelicalism tends to miss the fact that the great tempter of our age is Walmart. The tempter does not roam about as a horrifying monster, 
but an, as an angel of light who spends most of his time at the mall. See, the mall is a religious site, not because it's theological, but because it's liturgical. There are practices, there is a routine, there is ritual there. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in the rituals. The mall doesn't really care what we think. In fact, it's much more interested in what we love and what we do. I think we need to realize that as modern people, we are much more shaped by shopping and the economic system that in fact is sustained by shopping. People talk about ideology. Yeah, I think that's, that's way down the list. Ideologies don't necessarily shape people's behavior. It's more the practices that they engage in day after day. But here we are on Sunday, God's people in God's house, worshiping God. For us, liturgy means public worship. And these rituals tell us the ultimate story about who we are and what we are for. These practices are supposed to shape us. They are supposed to give us habits that guide us through the coming week. Sadly, I think that oftentimes our liturgies in church are much, much more like liturgies of the mall than they are liturgies of the church. We want to be excited. We want a new product. We want something that's at a discount. The practices of prayer, of singing, of offering, of the preaching, reading to scripture being read, or reading scripture as it's being read and listening to it, communion, baptism, um, these are practices in which we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that God begins the process. We didn't start this whole thing today. It is God who has called us to be his people and called us to come together to worship him. God initiates and we respond. What we do on Sundays, as I've said earlier, is in fact the week to come in microcosm, if we would but listen. So what I want to do now is consider what we do each Sunday when we come together and why do we do what we do every Sunday. The first words we hear after we've all seated and we are ready to worship, the first words we hear as our worship begins are, do you know what they are? Because the Lord is my salvation. Someone sings to us, these are the words, the first words of the liturgy that we hear. What wonderful words. Someone sings them, we hear but do we remember? We then respond, I will not fear. I've mentioned this before. The most repeated command in Scripture is not about love. The most repeated command in Scripture is, do not be afraid. And as we begin our worship each Sunday, we say, I will not be afraid. I will not fear. And we don't say it once, we sing it three times. Because the Lord is my salvation, I will not fear. Because my confidence is in you, I will not fear. Because you are with me, I will not fear. 
This is what should be with us in the coming week. As we leave this place and we begin a new week, these are the words that should be guiding us. These should be the basis of our practices. By the way, this reminds me of this wonderful verse in Psalm 112. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. The ESV, he is not afraid of bad news. And we sing at the beginning of our worship, I will not fear. And then we hear the one singing, sing one more line, for I am with you. And we finish the opening song by singing, Hallelujah. That is, praise the Lord. This is how our worship begins. This is how our liturgy begins. And then a pronouncement is made. We have come together to worship God. It is a simple statement of intent and purpose. That's why we're here. And then we sing hymns, usually four hymns every Sunday. They convey certain truths, um, sometimes about the God that we worship, sometimes about the lives that we live, sometimes about what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Augustine is reported to have said, He who sings prays twice. And by this he meant that singing adds to our praise and worship of God, that our voices are gifts with which we can make music to the Lord. Sung prayer expresses the joy of the heart, the happiness resulting from one who has encountered Jesus Christ and experienced his love. Sung prayer reminds us of the choirs of heaven with whom we are called to praise God eternally in heaven. Singing is different than talking. Imagine that you're walking down the street and there's a person coming toward you and he or she is talking to himself or herself. You might think there's probably something wrong with this person. But imagine that the person you encounter is not talking, but they are singing. They are singing to themselves. You think, what a delightful thing. This person is singing. Our perception would be quite different. Singing is an important part of the liturgy. It is something that we should not do simply on Sundays, but throughout the week. And then we hear the word of God read to us. We are to hear God speaking to us from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, from the New Testament, the New Covenant. We are to carry these words with us in the coming week. I think this is one where the modernity has really slowed us down. Imagine that you lived 500 years ago, or not even that, that you were illiterate. You could not read. You go to church on Sunday and hear, there you hear the word of God read. There I think it takes on a whole new dimension. You try to remember every word that you've heard and carry it with you to keep you until the next Sunday when you hear the word of God read again. We confess our sins and we hear the promise of forgiveness. By the way, I would point out that we confess our sins as a congregation, as the people of God. Something we do together. That we acknowledge that we are all sinners, we have fallen short, and God has given us grace. As we go through the coming week, we will sin sometimes knowingly, sometimes ignorantly. We must acknowledge that we are sinners, that we have sinned, that it is not unimportant. This is something to be dealt with. But we don't stop with 
the prayer of confession, we have the promise of forgiveness. We must not allow our sins to hold us captive and to weigh us down, to rob us of something that God freely gives us, the promise of forgiveness. It's a wonderful reminder of what Christ purchased for us by taking our sins on himself on the cross. And then we speak publicly of things that we are thankful for and we remember that God is the source of all things. We speak of needs and burdens, ours and those of others. Again, remembering that God is the source. And more than that, he is the one who loves us. I think one aspect here of the liturgy should be an awareness that we are not the only people in this room, in this building, in this city, on this planet. There are others. There's an awareness of their burdens, of their joys, of their sorrows. And we should carry these with us in the coming week and remember those things that have been spoken of. I'm so grateful that Lonnie every week sends out the prayer list to remind us that we can pray for one another specifically. And then we give. It's part of our worship. We acknowledge that what we have comes from God and that we return a portion of what we have to him with gratitude. But this also should shape our week. In the same way that we are to be open-handed as we give to God, in the coming week, from Monday through Saturday, we are also to be open-handed to those who are in need. We started it here first. We began the practice here first of giving, and that practice is to carry on through the rest of the week. Giving as liturgy, I think, should lead to a life of open-handedness, of generosity, I don't simply give to God and say, well, that's it, I've done my duty. No, this instructs us. This is a practice. As I give to God, I'm now ready to give to others. What I have comes from God, I return it to him, but then I realize I'm also to be a conduit, a channel, in order to give to others. We have communion, the Lord's Supper, in which we remember, and this is an important part of liturgy, remembering, um, we remember what Jesus has done for us. His body is broke, was broken, his blood was shed, that we might have new life. But there is more to this. In communion, we eat and we drink. We're going to do that the rest of this week. We are going to eat and we're going to drink. And we should realize that we are dependent upon these things for us to have life. That we are not self-sufficient beings. In the same way that we need to breathe air, we need to eat and we need to drink in order to survive. It is no small thing that Paul tells the Corinthians, who think that they are far more spiritual than anyone, including Paul. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We have communion here. We eat and drink here. But when we leave this place, we will eat and drink again. We began the practice here. Just as we began the practice of praying, of giving, of singing. And we carry that on with us through the rest of the week. Then we have the sermon, which is where we find ourselves right now. A sermon which is to instruct and correct. It is to provide food for meditation for the coming week. Perhaps it's just something I'm now becoming aware of, or it's becoming a, a practice within the church at large, 
that cell groups or Bible study groups, when they meet during the week, their purpose is to discuss the Sunday sermon. They heard a sermon, and now they discuss it among themselves. And if we don't have that, but I think within our lives, we can meditate on these things. And thanks to Dave, it's on the website if you want to listen to it again. Damon said something, and I didn't quite catch it. If I'm not the one speaking somebody else, you can go back and listen to it and think on it and meditate on it. Then we come to the close of our liturgy. We sing the doxology, which is to mark our lives throughout the week. Lives of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And finally, we have the benediction. Giving a sense of God's presence with us as we leave this place and as we will walk through the world in the coming week. You might be thinking, Damon, you've forgotten something. You didn't talk about prayer. Indeed, prayer is a part of our liturgy here. At least four times in the service we have prayer. And through the coming week we are also to be people of prayer. There's supposed to be something else though. And that is, as I pray when we're gathered, you all are joining in with me. I'm praying, but you all are praying with me. I think the same thing is true when we are away from each other. That as we pray apart from each other, we are still praying with each other as we are praying for each other. As we gather, as we pray together, it is a reminder of what we are to be doing throughout the coming week. So, you might think, well, that Damon, that's, that's, that's very good, very edifying. Um, if I go to church, I will have the liturgy, the practices that will keep me through the week. Not really. Someone has asked the question, how do you explain the fact that many people immerse themselves in Christian worship week to week and are still not formed into the image of Christ? The reality is there are many liturgies out there. This is but one. But this is, I think, the most important one. This is to shape your life as a child of God. In some ways, the early Christians had it better than us because they knew where the pagan temples were. They knew where false worship was taking place. It's not as clear, I think, for us today. I don't think we recognize the rival liturgies and rituals of the surrounding culture. I'll just mention one, and how freaked out people are. The singing of the national anthem before a national football game. And certain athletes have the audacity to mess up the liturgy by kneeling during that. That is a practice. That is a liturgy. Something that is sacred for people. And don't mess with that. That is but one of the many liturgies that we find ourselves surrounded by. And that shape our lives. So when you leave this place, you're like, okay, that's it. I've got it. Because God is my salvation, I will not fear. I'm going to go through the week and I'm going to pray. I'm going to listen to God's word speak to me. I'm going to be open-handed. When I eat and I drink, I'm going to think of him. I'm set. The reality is there are other liturgies out there that are competing. The liturgy of work. The liturgy of the neighborhood. The liturgy of leisure. It goes on and on and on. 
If you think, well, when I don't go to church, I don't have a liturgy to live by. No, you've got plenty of liturgies to live by. What I'm telling you is why we do what we do. It is so that we will have the practices that will reshape us into the image of Christ. We all have liturgies, more than one. And the question is, which ones will we follow? And which practices will become our habits? As God's children, we are called to faithful presence, to be lights in a world of darkness. This is how we are supposed to live our lives. But if we're not careful, we will live our lives by other practices, by other liturgies. It is in the worship of the triune God that we are restored by the story of Scripture and our imaginations are reshaped. Jesus said to his disciples, the pagans run after all those things, but seek you first the kingdom of God. Those are their liturgies. Those are their practices. You should have different practices in mind. I mentioned this earlier. It's a quote from a book uh, by a man named Robert Taft. The purpose of all Christian liturgy is to express in a ritual moment, for us a ritual hour, hour and a half, that which should be the basic stance of every moment of our lives. What we do here should be translated into the rest of our week. This is the beginning. This is it in microcosm. And now as we leave, it expands and it should shape what we do. We express in action what should be the activity of the heart. And that means that what we see in the ritual liturgy is something that, we should, that should be going on within our lives constantly. Not just Sunday. So, Sunday worship is important. It should be a priority. But it doesn't start and stop here. It is the beginning of a new week. These are practices that are to shape us through the rest of the week. And that's why in our text, we are told, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. Father, for many of us, we have been going to church for years. And I don't know that we've understood its place in our lives. We do see it as special and important, perhaps even a priority. But that it should shape our lives for the coming week. That what we do here is the beginning of what we do the rest of the week. That in giving to you, we prepare our hearts to be generous and open-handed to those around us. That in communion, we are prepared for the rest of the week to know that when we eat and drink, we are being sustained by these things, these gifts from you. Because you are our salvation, we will not fear. By your grace, we will not fear. I ask by your spirit that we would think on these things and put them into practice to realize the importance of what we do every Sunday morning. We come together to worship you 
to so shape our lives for the coming week. Looking ahead to the coming week, we are told that another heat wave is coming. Pray for each one here and those that aren't here that you would keep them safe from the heat. Keep us in good health. For those on the street, those who are homeless, you would watch over them as well. And if given the opportunity, we might be open-handed with them. Thank you for loving us. May we show your love to others. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.